it's one of those bikes that I almost feel like they got rid of the top tube so they can have a picnic basket in the down, down tube. There's really no, there's really no advantage to getting rid of the top tube. Hello, and welcome to the November 17th, 2023 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. It was about a week ago now that I started to hear some concerning news about the state of TriBike Transport, the popular bike shipping company that many, including me, have used numerous times over the years to send our bikes and gear bags to races that we travel to. Although TBT has, over the years, had some questionable pricing and logistical practices related to how they operate, on balance, I've always found them to be a reliable and trustworthy service. I know that many will now want me to elaborate on what I consider questionable, so I'll just dive into that for a second right now. When I ship my bike, why, for example, do I have to pay more to ship a disc wheel just because TBT doesn't want to accept liability for damage to disc wheels that are mounted on the bikes? That always struck me as an issue more related to TBT and shifting it onto customers. How about figuring out how to transport bikes safely with disc wheels on? Or alternatively, since you can't do that, take those disc wheels along with you at no extra cost, since you couldn't do it safely. Not really my problem. And if I am paying nearly $1,000 to ship my bike somewhere, why do I need to then pay more for insurance that we are learning was never worth the paper it was written on? And while we're on the subject of paying so much, why did I have to be without my bike for so long before and after events? That kind of ate into the whole convenience argument that TBT used in their marketing, didn't it? All right, I digress. Well, even with all of those things, I still use TBT whenever I could. Let's face it, I hate breaking down my bike to pack it, I hate trusting airlines not to break something, they almost always do, and I hate having to rent a bigger vehicle to drive with my bike case. And then, I hate having to do the whole thing all over again after the race. For all the not-so-great stuff, TBT was still a welcome partner at any race I traveled to, but seeing what has transpired over the past week has left me just a little bit bitter and, yes, pretty angry, and yet at the same time, I kind of feel unsurprised. I've met Mark Lozon, the owner of Tribike Transport, at a few different races over the years, and he always struck me as not a particularly customer service-oriented guy. He was more than happy to take your money, but not nearly so happy to engage with you or hear anything about your experience with this company, especially if it was at all negative. When I learned that TBT was on the verge of bankruptcy with hundreds of thousands of dollars in unpaid bills to a cargo company that Lozon had signed an agreement with in which he allowed said company to hold his customers' bikes and potentially even auction those bikes off in an effort to recoup payment for TBT's unpaid bills, I was flabbergasted and yet it tracked perfectly well with the man I had met. When I wrote to TBT's customer service several times to inquire about whether or not they intended to honor their commitment to transport my bike to my upcoming 70.3 in Indian Wells that I had paid for, the response was silence. Although, just a couple of days ago, I finally did hear from them saying, not too shockingly, that no, they wouldn't be helping me out, and there was nothing in that email regarding any sort of refund, because, of course, none is forthcoming. Again, Unsurprising, but oh so disappointing. 
I should note here, though, that Ironman has stepped up in a big way to backstop athletes who were relying on TBT for transport to and from Ironman Arizona and Cozumel. Ironman catches a lot of flack for quite a few things. Some of it, well, maybe much of it is deserved, but some of it not so much. And in this case, I think they deserve a huge amount of kudos for the fact that they've really come forward and are saving the day for a lot of athletes who otherwise are dealing with enough on their plate, just dealing with getting to these races and hoping that nothing's going to go wrong. Knowing that their bikes will be there and will be transported home after the event is something that Iron Man should be congratulated for. Well, when you consider that TBT knew perfectly well that this storm was brewing for several weeks now, and yet they continued to send email after email to triathletes over the past few weeks offering $50 off if they booked and paid for transport to 2024 events early, events that they knew full well that they would not be able to service nor refund, well, that was really just the icing on the cake of a complete and utter fiasco. TBT is done and dusted in cycling parlance. Even if they somehow were able to restructure and manage to emerge from this mess, there's no way that they could survive, as they have lost whatever trust they had among triathletes pretty much everywhere. The worst part of all of this, worse than what all of the athletes wondering if they were ever get their bikes again are going through, worse than all of the athletes like me who are out hundreds and even thousands of dollars for events that will not be serviced by TBT in the future. No, the worst part is that Mark Lozon is unlikely to get his comeuppance because as always, while the company goes belly up and gets destroyed, the owner who is responsible for the mess and deserves to face consequences will walk away scot-free. And that is super annoying. There was another story that broke last week, and it was far more important in my mind than the TBT fiasco, and involved someone significantly more important and memorable than Mark Lozon will ever be. Last Thursday night, the triathlon world lost one of its best ambassadors when Louise Atkinson Clark passed away in her sleep at age 73. There was a truly wonderful remembrance of Louise in Canadian Triathlon Magazine, and I'll post a link to that in the show notes. I really hope that you'll take a look at that. I've known Louise personally for several years in my capacity as a coach with LifeSport because she was an athlete of one of the other coaches there. I got to know her a little bit over the years, but more than that, I learned what just an amazing woman she was. LifeSport has a bunch of live training sessions each week, as well as chalk talks once a month, and Louise was pretty much always there, and always quick to ask really good questions and participate. Into her 70s, she was still running marathons and racing 70.3 triathlons, and still finishing at the top or near the top of her age group. At the Mont Tremblant 70.3, in August of this year, she had qualified for the World Championships in Taupo next year, and she reached out to me after my last race in North Carolina to see if I had had the similar success as well. When I did, she was one of the first to congratulate me, and we were exchanging messages about the lodging situation only a couple of days before she died. Louise had a big impact on me, and I deeply regret that I never told her that. After she died, I've seen an outpouring of love and affection that has made me realize that I wasn't alone in this regard. Louise impacted many in our sport because she was always a source of encouragement and joy, and she lived her life the way I think we all wish we could. And frankly, she even died in a manner that I know we all wish we could as well, though perhaps not quite so young. On this podcast, I've had the opportunity to interview some amazing men and women in our sport, and I would be lying if I said that I wasn't in awe of all of them for what they have accomplished and what they can do. But the truth is, 
my heroes in this sport aren't just the likes of Matt Sharp, Lionel Sanders, Tamara Jewett, and their competitors. My heroes are also Louise and her competitors in the age groups above mine, who set the example of what we all wish to be, and who set the standard for the kind of legacy that I too hope to have one day. With Thanksgiving coming up here in the United States next week, I hope that you'll indulge me for just a few minutes more so that I can be sure to let a few of these people know how much they mean to me, so that I never feel the kind of regret that I did with Louise. Ellen Hart is a fierce competitor, one of the first real stars who I met soon after I moved to Colorado 20 years ago. Over the years, we've become friends. She's been a guest on this podcast, and I'm always amazed by her quiet demeanor that belies her dominance in everything she does athletically. James Mitchell is an athlete who I coach and has been an absolute joy to work with. Jim took up triathlon in his 70s and completed his first 70.3 last year. His youthful curiosity about triathlon and his determination to continue to compete in numerous marathons and multi-sport events, all with an artificial knee, has taught me once again how age need only be a number. Natalie Grabeau is another triathlete who came to our sport very late. I believe she told me it was in her 60s, but she discovered that she only had one speed, and that's fast. She's been a world champion at both the half and full distances and looks so much younger than her age. Her exuberance on race day is incredibly infectious, but don't let that fool you. The woman loves to complete. Finally, John Snelling, a man who I met in Chattanooga in 2022 before the 70.3 race and who I've enjoyed chatting with and following ever since. John lives his life to the absolute fullest and has never passed up an opportunity to have a good time, be it at a race, training for a race, or just in between races. I aspire to be like all of you and want you all to know how much your example has meant to me. Thank you, and I hope to be your friend for many years to come. On the medical mailbag, Coach Juliet Hockman and I discuss a recent paper published in the medical literature that quantified and characterized the types of problems encountered in the medical tent of the Ironman World Championships from 1989 through to 2019. Some of the reported findings won't come as that much of a surprise, but I bet some of them likely will. The research is important because knowing what are the most common issues that affect triathletes of different ages and genders can help individuals better prepare their race plan in order to try and avoid the most common pitfalls, and that discussion is coming up shortly. Later, I'm joined by a friend of the podcast who was a guest once before, way back in episode 18, Heath Dodson. Heath is a cycling national champion and a coach who has a real passion for all things aero. I wanted to have him back on the program to help us age groupers get a sense of some of the new bike tech that has been showing up in triathlon. Specifically, I wanted to know what matters and what's just for show. Are there any things that we should consider high-value aerodynamic additions to our setups and other things that maybe we should just pass on? Heath gives us the lowdown, and that's coming up just a little later on. Before all of that, I want to take a moment once again to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they could sign up to support this program and in doing so, get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month. Plus, for North American subscribers who sign up at the $10 per month level of support, they receive a special thank you gift in the form of a Boco TriDoc podcast running hat. So I hope that you'll visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash tridocpodcast so you can learn more about how to become a supporter so that you too can get access to the bonus episodes and maybe that cool gift as well. And as always, I thank you in advance just for considering.
I'm joined once again by my friend and colleague, Juliet Hawkman. Good morning, Juliet. Good morning, Jeff. If Juliet is here, it can only mean one thing. It's time for the <laughs> medical mailbag. That time when we reach deep into the stack of letters that I've received. Okay, there's no letters. But I, I, I have, <laughs> I'm excited to say I have been receiving quite a few requests. And in the coming episodes, we are going to have uh, a few listener questions. But what do we have today to dive into, Juliet? Right. So I think this is actually pretty timely because we're still enjoying some of the afterglow of Kona. Um, one of the things our, our listeners have been wondering about, and I've been wondering about this too since I was over there this year, is who ends up in the med tent at the end of the race and why do they end up there and how many of our athletes or how many athletes as a percentage of, of the whole competing in a race like Kona, which is so tough, end up in the medical tent. So I'm kind of curious. I mean, you know, the medical tent is not an area that the rest of us get to go to, to kind of watch. And yet so many people, you know, do end up there. And I'm just sort of, I'm just sort of curious why and, and who. Ah, well, it's a good question. First, a little bit of background. I have, as a physician, worked in the medical tent. I volunteered in the medical tent at uh, the very first Ironman that I signed up for. In 2003, I was in Penticton and volunteered in the medical tent there so that I could get an early opportunity to sign up. Those were the days where you had to show up in person. And to do that got you guaranteed access to early sign up because the online registration would come out 24 hours later. And volunteering at a race was the one way to ensure that you would get access to, to sign up. And so I, I volunteered at uh, Ironman Canada in 2003. It was a great experience. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I had no idea what to expect, but it was quite an operation. Huge tent, lots of beds fair number of athletes would be coming through, but I didn't really have a sense of how many we were seeing over the course of the day. I have also attended the medical conference in Kona, where the doctors who attend the conference have the opportunity to volunteer in the medical tent. I didn't get to do that because I was actually participating in the event. But a paper that just came out within the last couple of months that was published in the medical literature does a really nice job of synthesizing the data that has been collected over 30 years of staffing the medical tent in Kona. And it was titled Medical Encounters and Treatment Outcomes in Ironman Distance Triathlon. It's a little bit deceptive of a title because it makes it seem like it's all Ironman races, when in fact, it is data that was collected specifically from Kona in the events going back to 1989 all the way through 2019. So a really nice cross-sectional study of medical records from the race in Kona. Now, I don't think that we can extrapolate from this race to all races, because as we know, the, the environment at Kona is very specific, right? You were there, you, you, For you sure. didn't participate, yeah. but you were, you were spectating. I was you know, hot. hot. I was hot as a spectator. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's hot. It's humid. The race mm -hmm. itself is, is not a, a particularly difficult course, but the environment makes it much more difficult. And having participated there twice, uh, I visited the medical tent as an athlete yeah. the second time. So I, I was interested to see what they found in this study. And it's, uh, it's a really interesting kind of breakdown. Over the years, the 30 years that this study was done, there were 40,462 athletes who participated in the race in Kona. I, I was astonished to see that the number of people who visited the medical tent totaled 
10,533. So that breaks down to an average of 351 per year, which is 22% of all of the athletes. That's one in five. (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I have a zillion questions. We keep going. (laughs) Now, I mean, that that doesn't mean one in five ended up being carted off off the finish line being taken. Like, I mean, I went to the medical tent, but I, I went... I, that's not true. I didn't go under my own power. <laughs> I, yeah. I stood up, but then I needed some help. But, right. you know, a lot of people walk over to the medical tent. Uh, most people are sort of like walking in. Uh, there's a handful who will have to be brought in by other means, but but there's a, a wide spectrum of, of what people are going in with. Now, this is still a, a pretty large number, in, and I'm pretty sure when I worked at Ironman Canada, we weren't seeing one in five. So again, I think the environment is is saying something here. So so when did these athletes tend to show up? Well, interestingly, the busiest period in the medical tent was between nine and 14 hours after the race start time. Okay. So that means you were seeing some of the really fast people. You were seeing mm-hmm. kind of the average because the average finish time in Kona is around 13 to 14 hours. But you weren't, you didn't tend to see the the big wave of athletes which comes between 14 and 16 i guess it's that's not really true to say it's not the huge i guess the 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 big peak is around that 13 to 14 hours but you're not seeing huge numbers of athletes coming in later in the evening part of that might be just because it's cooled down a little bit the sun is gone i guess you know it's hard to say right well part of well and probably part of it is that people who are finishing closer to 16, 17 hours, a lot of them are walking the marathon, right? Or walking huge parts of it. And so perhaps the long, slow game is not putting as much stress on their bodies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Can you you back up for one second and just say, what, what is the medical tent able to handle? Like people are going in there for, you know, really bad blisters and they're going in there for, you know, I assume like IV infusions, but what happens, what can the medical tent handle when it comes to, you know, Ironman related issues and what do they have to send out for? If you see what I'm saying. Amazingly enough, now Kona is, is kind of special because Kona is tied to the medical conference. And so because of that, they have this enormous influx of physicians, many of whom are very dedicated to treating athletes. So when I was there as a patient, I was surrounded by just a huge number of physicians, nurses, PAs, like all of these health professionals who were there for the conference. And and so it was really quite remarkable. So they were able to handle a lot. I mean, they can, they all, they, they start intravenouses when necessary. They, they try to, a lot of the people coming in there are dehydrated, have electrolyte disturbances. And so they really try to do everything orally as much as possible, but they will start IVs. And that is the most common treatment that is rendered. Okay. They uh, will do a lot on scene. Life-threatening emergencies are, are fortunately incredibly rare. And, sure. uh, but they can do, obviously, they can do ACLS type things. But if, if, if somebody's particularly ill, if somebody doesn't respond to the initial intravenous infusions, they will send them to hospital. When I was a patient in the, in the tent, uh, I saw somebody who was clearly very hyponatremic. They were uh, altered. They apparently had had a seizure before I got there. And I was talking with the provider that was with me and uh, we were just chatting and uh, I was sort of questioning, well, shouldn't that person go to the hospital? And 
there was such a there was such a huge number of very skilled physicians in the tent right there. The feeling right. was that they weren't necessarily going to benefit by being in the hospital versus being right. where they no were with us. Better than where they were, right? <laughs> exactly. So they actually were able to treat this person and get them back to a normal state, and probably benefited that person because they didn't have to then have a huge hospital bill and everything else. But they do; they have ambulances there, and they will send people to hospital. I I don't know. Again, I think Kona's special because of the the tie to that conference. I think most medical tents will have a lower threshold to send people off. Now, clearly, somebody coming in experiencing chest pain that needs more evaluation, somebody coming in with a traumatic injury, those people are going to be sent off right away. But for the most part, that's not what they're seeing. And that's what is shown in this paper. So the most common medical complaints are, as I said, related to dehydration, uh, nausea, dizziness, which is likely related to dehydration, exhaustion, either from heat exhaustion or just physical exhaustion, muscle cramps, and vomiting. Those were the most common complaints. Musculoskeletal and dermatologic ailments were also relatively common. And when they talk about dermatologic ailments, my thought was sunburn. Actually, that's not what they're referring to. What they're referring to is blisters. Oh, okay. Okay. So you can imagine when you're talking about one in five athletes presenting to the medical tent, that probably includes a lot of people who just showed up with blisters. So so how, what's the, I mean, that leads to the next question is, you know, what's the, was there any uh, data about the average time an athlete spent in the medical tent? I mean, getting blister help is 15 minutes, getting, you know, an IV is a lot longer. So yeah, like that. Okay, unfortunately, that kind of stuff wasn't in there. But they did okay. have a good breakdown of who was presenting, which I thought okay. was interesting. You were most likely to present if you were not in your middle age. So athletes who were eighteen to thirty, yeah, athletes who were eighteen to thirty-four, <laughs> athletes who were eighteen to thirty-four or greater than seventy were most likely to show up in the tent. But anybody between the ages of thirty-four and seventy had a lower rate of showing up. And I, they did, the authors had no idea why this was, and neither do I. But one of the things that was pretty interesting <laughs> was women. Women were significantly more likely to end up in the medical tent than were men, on the average of, I think it was one and a half times more likely. And mm-hmm. That is a mystery. The the authors didn't have a good idea why. They couldn't really pin it down. And I don't have a sense why that is either. Now, is that true numbers or is that as as a percentage of the participation? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, participation. It's a percentage of the the athletes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, first I want to make a sort of, you know, a a, a generational comment about how those young people have to toughen up a little bit. No, well, I think faster. <laughs> I, I think it's something to do with yeah. I think I think it's, it's, it's probably a speed thing, yeah, yeah and yeah, an yeah. effort put in. Interestingly, pros pros showed up at the same, same rate, rate as age groupers, which is yeah. really interesting. So one in yeah. five pros are ending up in the medical tent, mm-hmm. and presumably they're not going in with blisters. No. And, and when you ask about how, about people going to hospital. It's 17 out of every 1,000 who showed okay. up at the medical tent had to be transferred to hospital. Okay, so it's, it's, it's like 0.17%. It's a very, very low amount. Right. 
which is good. It, it means that, that, that most people are treat and release. They're not coming in with uh, very severe things. Uh, and it just goes to show that the medical tent is appropriately staffed and appropriately resourced to be able to right. manage most of these problems. It also shows that people doing this race are able to do it and not, not becoming so ill that they need to go to hospital, which is, right. which is, which is good. Right. Now, has there been, was there any data in terms of um, increased visits to the medical tent over time, like over the 30 years that they were running the study? Are more people visiting the medical tent now as a percentage of the overall race population? That's a really good question. Let me actually look at the paper and see if that comes in, because I don't uh, remember seeing if they, if they if they did that kind of breakdown of the data over time, because that okay. would be really interesting. I, I don't know because, you know, the numbers have been fairly static in terms of, cause they've always been a little bit, they've always been a little bit restricted in terms of how many people can race there, but no, yep. they didn't actually, they didn't actually track that, okay. which is too Just bad curious. because I think that would be interesting to know because, you know, times have gone down. And so right. as times have gone down, it would be interesting to know if uh, numbers of visits have gone up and that is not reported. So that's right. interesting. Right. You know, the, the, the question I'm, I'm noodling over the question of why, more women than men as a percentage of the race population or race total. I obviously don't have any answers. I mean, the, only, the, the one thing that popped to mind is I wonder if women are more willing to ask for help than men at the end of a race. I'm not well, sure. Well, but that doesn't idea. really track with, that doesn't really, they're actually finding that the women actually had issues. So it's not just that, like, for example, and we've talked about this in a previous episode. So for example, in this study, 30% of the women that received blood work had very low sodium levels compared to only 20% of the men. So it, it doesn't just hmm. suggest that the women are more willing to ask for help, but it also suggests that the women really had issues. So there may well, be no, a component I wasn't implying, of that. I wasn't, implying, I wasn't implying that. I was wondering if there were more untreated men walking around post-race because maybe they thought they were okay and they didn't require help. I don't know. It's possible, but that's a pretty big, that's a, like when you can show number. that 30% of the women have a real low sodium compared to only one in five, that's a pretty striking result there. And we've seen this in other studies that women tend to get hyponatremic more than men do. Mm. Uh, again, that's, there, there may be something to do with sex hormones and how mm -hmm. estrogen affects handling of sodium. So it's, it's hard to say. It's hard to say, but, but that may play a, a small role in it as well, I, I, you know, psych the psychology of things. But I'll tell you, when, when you can't stand up because you're hypotensive, I don't think it right. matters what gender <laughs> right. you are. <laughs> right, yeah. for sure. I. I mean, I know I'm going down a very specific rabbit hole here, but I also wonder if there was, if we, if in some future study, the data could be parsed to see if more postmenopausal women were checking into the medical tent. I wonder if that also has something to do with sodium management. And we're going down a tangent here, but anyway, just kind yeah. Of well, I'll tell you, you know, in this study, and they re they reference a different study that looked at athletes at Ironman New Zealand. And that, that particular study, I, I haven't 
pulled that article, but they're referencing it. They talk about it in the discussion of this article. The author of that one, by the way, is the very appropriately named Speedy. Speedy was the author of the article on Ironman New Zealand. He found an even more striking difference between men and women and their sodium levels. When when they looked at the medical tent, there were 330 athletes showed up at the medical tent at Men New Zealand in the year that this was looked at. Almost half of the women getting blood work were hyponatremic versus 14% of the men. So uh, there's clearly something, yeah, there's clearly something going on there. And I, again, I don't, I, I, we've looked at this before. Sex hormones seem to play somewhat of a role. There's also the issue that women have a higher percentage of free body water than men do. So there is something there. And women definitely need to be more cognizant of taking in sodium with and and be careful about free water. So we know Mm -hmm. that, but, Anyways, it's 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 certainly okay. interesting. It's it's very interesting. Uh, I just want to also point out that I, you know, when we looked at this study, we also pulled a couple of other studies that I think are worth talking about because those who get some kind of medical adverse medical problem and show up at the medical tent during a race is one thing. But the other thing is people who are training for races and develop injuries. And we came across a couple of studies that looked specifically at that question and found, I think, findings that aren't particularly shocking, but I think are worth discussing. So one of them is from back in 2017, and it was titled Triathlon Injuries Transitioning from Prevalence to Prediction and Prevention. And this was a study that it was a survey. So, you know, survey studies are always a little bit fraught, because you tend to, you tend to get more positive results. People who have something to say are more likely to answer the survey. People who haven't had an injury might not answer. Anyways, what they found was they looked at athletes who were self-reporting injury in the year leading up to Ironman Hawaii and found that 90% self-reported an injury. As many as 37, uh, sorry, 87% over the 26 weeks leading into the race, 37% in the eight weeks leading into the race. And the average injuries was about three per year. Now, these injuries could be all over, right? I mean, a lot of them are chronic sort of overuse type things. Running injuries were, you know, the the most common. Cycling were second, though. And then swimming had the lowest rates. Only 7% reported swimming injuries, which doesn't really surprise me. I was surprised, though, to see that cycling injuries were reported by almost 43% of people in this study. I wonder if Uh, that include crashes? I'm sure it does. But... I mean, I, I I can't believe that you know even even if you take aside crashes, I mean, not there's not that many people crashing, and and I mean that's a lot of injuries for so. I mean, I don't I don't encounter that many. I, I running injuries one and two absolutely. I'm sure. used to that. I see that all the time. Right. But forty three percent cycling is pretty high. One of the things they found in this study, which I thought was interesting, and and after thinking about it, made sense to me. People who train more have a lower percentage of injuries than people who train less. Which doesn't that I doesn't that make sense. intuitive sense? Yeah, it makes intuitive sense completely, right? The weekend warrior yeah. is going to get injured more often than the really consistent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. the, the person who's going out who's trying to make up for the fact that they're not training as much, they might train harder more often, and therefore, yeah. they're going to get hurt, right? Yeah. So the, the two things that this these authors came away with, and that they kind of wanted, because, you know, part of the title was 
preventing injury. And I, mm-hmm. I don't think this will come as earth shattering to anybody. Be careful with volume. So increase volume at a low but continuous rate. So don't go, don't do too much too quickly. And then the other thing is allow for recovery because recovery mm-hmm. is very important in lowering risk of injury. And uh, risk of injury increases when exercise load increases at a rapid rate. That was their conclusions. And I, I don't think. Well, I guess maybe I was going to say, I don't think we need a study to know that, but maybe we know that because of these kinds of studies. Right, right, right. Another study, another one that was interesting was high prevalence of overuse injury among iron distance athletes. This is one from 22 weeks before the Norsemen looking at 174 participants who were training for the Norsemen. They were monitoring themselves. uh, Sorry, they were, they were being monitored by the, the, the authors of this study. And uh, a lot of them had injuries, not surprisingly. Norseman, as you know, is, is one of the extreme triathlons. It is an Ironman distance triathlon, but it's it's pretty extreme in terms of the course and the environment. Well, it's actually the world uh, championships of, of uh, extremes. It is the now, extreme yeah. world championships, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So this one was interesting because, remember I said in the other study, 7% had shoulder or swimming issues. In this one, right. 42% re- reported shoulder huh. problems, which I thought was... Really interesting because that's a very high. I I don't know about your experience. My experience with my athletes is I don't see a lot of swimming issues. No, not a lot of swimming at all. Just once in a blue moon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that's got to do with volume or or I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing they found was lower leg and lower back issues. Lower back, I presume, probably bike. Lower leg, definitely running. One and two for for both of those. And maybe that's where the bike stuff was coming in before. Just lower back stiffness and soreness. I wonder if that was the issue. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And then the last one that I wanted to mention was a study on ultramarathoners, which my interns thought was a fascinating study only because... Uh, one of these races involved this insane race of 624 miles over a few days, <laughs> which oh my, my interns thought was pretty crazy. Insane. Anyways, yeah. yeah. So this, this report found that 1,173 injuries among the 257 runners, about 95% of those injuries were very minor and reported as dermatologic. And again, blisters. blisters. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. So not, not terribly surprising. <laughs> if, you're, right. if you're running 600 miles or so, well, I, I think a few blisters are to be expected. <laughs> right. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. Super interesting data, especially on the, the Kona medical tent. I think that's, that's great. I'm really glad that, that you brought this to the floor, that someone out there was curious about it as well. So. Yeah, and I think I think you know when we think about mitigation, I think that if uh, you're out there and you're doing these races, clearly as as we as coaches tell our athletes all the time, staying on top of hydration right from the mm-hmm. beginning is very mm-hmm. important because it's going to mitigate things like dehydration, electrolytes, and also we know that dehydration is what leads to a lot of the gastrointestinal stuff. So getting right. on top of your hydration right from the beginning is is one of the most important ways to to keep yourself out of the medical tent. And that clearly is what these uh, authors found. So it just echoes, I think, what we have been telling our athletes for a long time. So yeah, I, I want to finish this segment by just kind of 
revisiting the topic from a couple Tart of episodes cherry ago. Juice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've had a we've had a month now. I uh, I've heard mm-hmm. from several listeners who've been trying this. I have now been trying this for a month. Juliet, I know you've had yeah. So mm-hmm. what what's your experience been? Again, now I want listeners to know this is not a controlled experiment by no. any means. This is very anecdotal, but we're going to give you a few anecdotes. We of course leave it up to you if you're interested in hearing the science. Please go back a couple episodes you will hear what we had to say about it then. We we felt the science was compelling enough for us to give it a try. Juliet, what did you find? Right. So as you said, this is absolutely not a controlled study, and we don't get this product for free either. But so I am enjoying the tartary juice. I'm doing an ounce in the morning. I usually do some kind of workout first, and then an ounce sort of sometime in the afternoon, you know, more usually with dinner or towards bed. I find that I am sleeping a little bit better. I have no idea how much of this is me just believing that I'm going to sleep better. Now, I also would I admit I have a few confounding variables. I also, because I've had, I had two surgeries last week, I've also stopped drinking for now. <laughs> so I don't have a glass of wine in the evening anymore. And I think that particularly at my age and being female, that also affects sleep quality. I'm also being much more disciplined about about diet and screen time since I'm not training right now. So so I, I am perhaps not the best example, but I, I actually enjoy the taste of it. It's easy to mix into smoothies. I find them drinking more because it's not straight water, which I find boring to drink. So all of these could be factors, but I'm a fan. And I, I actually went on a subscription model, three bottles a month because my husband's drinking it too. And so we're, we're going to get it delivered automatically now. We're, we're, we're bought in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and my experience has been similarly positive. I definitely found it was helping me sleep. This past week, I've had some life stuff going on, which has interrupted my sleeping. <laughs> but But I don't think that it's necessarily a sign that the cherry juice isn't working. I just think it's life gets in the way. But I, I the big thing for me is I just find that... I, Again, I don't know how much of this is just because I'm thinking, I don't know, I don't know, but I just feel like I can do hard workouts back to back a little bit better than I could before. And I don't know, I I, I don't have any scientific method of, of proving that it's the cherry juice, but... And I'm in this big block heading up to my last race of the year, and I'm doing some pretty hard workouts, and I just feel like I am able to do them with a little bit more gusto and a little bit more benefit than I could before I started doing this. Now, you know, that's my anecdote. So uh, I'll, I'll keep doing it as well. I, I don't know how much, because it, it's not cheap. I mean, it's like I, you nope. know, get into two bottles for a month, but I don't know if I'll do it through the winter. I might just pick it up again once I start training hard in the spring. So uh, we'll see. But I, I, when we did the, the, the discussion, I had said that I thought it would taste terrible. And in the end, it actually tastes delicious. No, like, it actually uh, tastes great. Yeah. yeah. You, yeah. Mix a, you mix an ounce with just a big glass of water and it goes down really easily. I don't think it's bad at all. I, it's a lot better than spirit. I actually, <laughs> I actually, yeah, right. I actually take a shot of the ounce. I, I just, I love the flavor. And, oh, and yeah. when I mix it in with my smoothie, it really gives this really nice cherry flavor to the smoothie. So I, I, I've really enjoyed it. The, the listeners that I heard from, uh, a couple of listeners initially told me they were drinking the non-concentrate, and they thought that that was actually giving them some GI problems. So oh, I don't okay. get too into the weeds on that. But when they switched to the concentrate, they felt that that went away. One listener said that initially she thought that the cherry juice was giving her significant drowsiness, 
But in the end, she thought, no, she actually had a virus. And she kind of thinks she maybe conflated that. Mm -hmm. But she still says that, I I think she told us that she still, she just drinks one ounce, right? She doesn't do two because she still thinks it does give her, like, she sleeps really well, but maybe too well. Is that fair? I I, I think she's still working on it. She's still tweaking it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she, yeah. She, but she, she like you but, as a doctor with pretty insane hours. So <laughs> yeah, but all of the responses I've heard from listeners have been pretty positive. So if you're listening to this and you want to give us some feedback as to what you uh, thought about your own personal experiment, please do so. And if you have questions for future medical medical mailbag segments, you can do the same thing. The way to do that is either to send me an email at tri underscore doc at iCloud.com or join the private Facebook group for the podcast. Just search for the TriDoc podcast. You'll see the group there. Answers the three very easy questions. I'll gain you admittance. You can give your thoughts on tart cherry juice or ask any questions you might have, or just join the conversation there. We'd love to have you. Juliet, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining me, and I'll look forward to our next conversation for the next episode. Thanks so much, Jeff. As triathletes, we are all acutely aware of the newest high-tech trends in our sport when it comes to getting free speed on the bike. But I doubt that few of us can say that we have the insights of my guest on the program today, North Carolina-based cycling national champion Heath Dotson. Heath is a former elite cyclist turned Kona qualifying triathlete turned multi-time national champion track racer. He likes to say that most of all of these have been accomplished with a little bit of talent and playing attention to a lot of little aerodynamic details. He's been aero-obsessed since he started cycling and has been testing athletes in the wind tunnel and the field since 2010. He's also been involved in many high-profile product development products with success in the Olympics all the way to the Tour de France. Heath has been on the podcast before, way back on episode 18, but I've invited him back to discuss all of the latest innovations that we are starting to see out on the course in the past couple of years in order to understand why they've taken off and whether or not we should be thinking of adopting any of them as age groupers. Heath, thanks so much for joining me again on the TriDoc podcast. Thanks, Jeff. It's nice to be here. All right. I reached out to you because there just seems to be a plethora of stuff, gadgets, gizmos, different ways of riding. And I kind of find myself not sure about how many of those things I want to think about incorporating. And I imagine many of the listeners are probably feeling the same way. So I thought, who better to ask than you, <laughs> the the consummate arrow person. And so I've got a little list here that I want to run through. And I think I want to start with what we were ta- chatting about just before we, we came on and started recording, and that's clothing. And that's because when you were on a long time ago, back on the 18th episode, we talked about how clothing is faster than skin. And at that time, we talked about what was a, a recent development, which was the socks that you had worked with that Julian Alaphilippe had worn to a, a stage win. And it was the socks that came sort of halfway up the calf. And there was this whole kerfuffle about the length of socks allowed, things like that. And uh, I have tried them. I, I, I like them, but I found them incredibly difficult to put on. Uh, they don't last very long because, as you said, they're really made for cycling. But, but, but you feel that if you can cover up skin, you're going to be faster. And could you explain why that is? Yeah, I I think the thing with skin is that it generally is, 
I can't, I, I guess I can't tell you exactly the, the, the reason, you know, that, that skin is slow and apparently it's not slow for everybody because Remco Avenipol, who is very famous past world champion, actually current world champion time trialist in, at the world tour, they found he, he was kind of an outlier. So they found that the more skin they showed on him, the faster he actually was. So um, it, that's a very rare thing. And, you know, I, the, the one thing with putting uh, Lycra over the skin is that it helps to control the airflow a little bit better. And then with skin, you're sort of, a, a lot of people have either hair on the arms or hair on the legs or whatever. Most people aren't, aren't don't have hairy legs when they're, when they're cycling these days, but that covering the skin just basically helps to control the airflow a little bit better. And so you're seeing things like, and I I think it's the right covering of the skin. So it's not, you know, I think we kind of got into this thing going all the way back to maybe our first aero camp where we were out in LA doing testing on the velodrome and that kind of thing. And, and, we kind of came up with this thing that basically skin is slow, skin is slow, skin is slow. And I, I think that's true to an extent provided that what is covering it is fast. And so essentially what happens is that the body is, is not particularly made up of aerodynamic shapes. It's basically a bunch of cylinders when you look at it. So if you look at from the, the calf area to the thighs, to the upper arms, it's basically a bunch of cylinders and cylinders are really bad aerodynamically. And so you basically, you get a high pressure, high pressure zone at the very front, followed by kind of a very low pressure zone. And you get a lot of turbulence coming off of it. And it just, it just doesn't, it's just not very aerodynamic. And so that's what you're seeing with a lot of the, the things like calf sleeves or the sleeved, the sleeve tri suits or skin suits is that you're you're having a textured fabric on those particular cylinders, which trips the air, which sounds like it wouldn't necessarily do what it's supposed to, but essentially it's like a golf ball. So if you if you were to hit a golf ball without dimples, there's it would not travel very far and it would be very erratic. When you hit a golf ball with dimples, essentially the it creates the turbulence around the, the golf ball and actually creates kind of an aerodynamic um, bubble for, for the air. So it's the same with, same with the calf sleeves and, and long sleeve tri suits. That's why you see the stripe fabric, which is probably the most common. You kind of have this ridged stripe fabric that, that you're seeing a lot of manufacturers use and there's there's some newer stuff that's out but that's probably the most the most common and again it just sort of it it sort of calms the airflow to for lack of a better lack of a better explanation and that in itself makes the cylinder less less advantageous or or you know more aerodynamic essentially so let's spend a second here and just sort of get into that a little bit, because I think for people mm-hmm. to understand what you're saying, what we're trying to say is to be more aerodynamic. We want something to slip through the air without causing disturbance. Is that kind of a way to break that down nicely? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a there's a, a diagram that's out there that it's it's actually pretty interesting. It's 
you can probably Google it and find it, but they compare a, a long section airfoil to a single strand of wire and the, and they both have the exact same drag, even though the, the long section airfoil is much larger. It just allows the, yeah, it just basically controls the airflow. So it allows the air to, to slip by uh, quickly. And so, you know, whereas, whereas the wire or the, again, the round section is, is not, is not as aerodynamic. So when we talk about aerodynamics, we're talking about something being able to move through the air, allow the air to slip by without being necessarily disturbed. Something that goes through the air without disturbing the air will have less drag. The air has less turbulence coming off of the back of it. And when we look at these different fabrics that enclose the skin, what they're doing is creating this, as you said, an aerodynamic bubble. It's, it's, it's removing these high pressure zones in front. So you're not getting compression of the air by the cylinder, your arm or your chest. And you're not getting this sudden, almost like this turbulence in the back where the air is now having to almost explode around that cylinder and then coming together behind that cylinder and causing all of this turbulence, which makes a lot of drag. Am I kind of making that simplistically? Yes, I, I think that's I think that's a good good explanation there. So okay, so I can intuit then how clothing will allow for the, our cylinders. I think that's a really nice way of putting it to be more aerodynamic. And you mentioned calf sleeves. Now I've mm-hmm. reviewed compression wear on this program before and said how compression wear definitely does not improve performance, but it seems as though perhaps calf sleeves, be they compression or not, would definitely have an aerodynamic impact on the bike. And as you and I were talking about before, in a wetsuit, in a swim that's wetsuit legal, obviously in swims where you're not allowed to wear a wetsuit, calf sleeves would not be allowed on the swim. But in a swim that is wetsuit legal, you could wear calf sleeves underneath your wetsuit. And therefore, when you got into transition, they would already be on, you wouldn't have to deal with putting them on. And then on the bike, that would enhance the aerodynamics of your legs. I, I think that's in general. Yes. I would say that that's, that's a, a good summary. I think again, aerodynamics and uh, there's always a caveat with aerodynamics and really training in general and, and just about everything. It's, it's kind of, it depends, right? So for some people having a calf sleeve might be faster and some people having a calf sleeve is might be neutral. So Again, it really boils down to testing. And so you really want to, and I know it's not, it's not always in everybody's ability or, or they have the time or they have the resources to, to test. So you can sort of go off of best practices is what I would, what I would say. And that is, you know, I think we talked about this on the last podcast, but you know, I always get the question, what's the fastest helmet or what's the fastest skin suit or what's the fastest aero bars or whatever. And it, it always comes back to the individual, but there are some things that work well. And, and in general, calf sleeves are either a net gain or neutral. So I've never really seen anybody test them where they come out to be uh, a negative. And what are we talking about when you say a net gain? Like, give us an example. Are we talking seconds, minutes? Well, it could be, I think it could be anywhere from, you know, seven to 10 watts. That's testing at probably, that would be testing at, like I say, a tunnel speed of, of 30 miles an hour. And so you get, 
you start. So at 40 K or 25 miles an hour, it's about half that. And, you know, you go down to 20 miles an hour, it's about half that again. So it could be three Watts for somebody who is a relatively slower uh, age grouper who might be averaging 19 to 20 miles an hour for the course. It could be four to five Watts for somebody who's more in the like 215, 220 range of a half Ironman. And then pros obviously are benefiting the most as far as Watts save. But the other thing to remember too, is that it's that weird thing where you're like, well, actually the slower you are, the more time you actually save because you're out on the course longer. So, you know, five to, you know, seven to 10 Watts at, at high speeds, 28 plus miles an hour, the time saved is going to be a relatively uh, smaller, but you know, it's, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of about half to one second per kilometer or something like that. So, you know, it could be up to a minute, minute and a half for, for okay. a half Ironman. That's pretty, that's pretty reasonable. That's pretty reasonable. All right. I want to talk about some of the functional things now on the bike itself. We've seen an explosion in popularity of these kind of arm cups, these fairings that people are using mm-hmm. on their aero bars. They're not inexpensive. They're not small. Mm-hmm. It seems counterintuitive that they would be necessarily more aero than the traditional aero bars with just the, the you know, the rests for your, your forearms. But mm-hmm. Now that we understand this notion of kind of disturbing the air and allowing the air to slip around the cylinder, I guess it kind of makes sense. And again, the point of those armrests seem to be more to change your position, to give you more of that praying mantis type of position. So Mm -hmm. tell us, what is the advantage of these armrests versus the traditional aero bar arm cup? And understanding again that it's going to depend on an individual. So let's just assume we're talking about an individual who can be in a comfortable position with these armrests. Why is it beneficial and how much are they gaining out of it? I would say it's beneficial. First of all, I would say that it's beneficial for comfort. So a lot of these armrests are long, so you get more support up the forearm and you are able to hold a more aerodynamic position easier. And so that to put a number on it would be really, really tricky. Even the full custom, the full custom extensions and everything like that. It's a really, really, really minimal gain. Is it fair to say then, like, like I have a setup right now that I'm extremely comfortable in and I ride air, like I just did a race here in North Carolina. We're recording this early, sorry, late October. I just Mm -hmm. finished in Wilmington where I was basically an aero for the entirety of the 90 kilometers. And my setup is very comfortable. I was an aero the whole time. So I'm not going to be, again, is it safe to say then I, I would not necessarily benefit from making that change? Again, you'd have to test. <laughs> it's always, it always comes back to the testing and it's the thing with, with those, with those cups or the, the extensions and, and that kind of thing, it does kind of eliminate the gap in between say a round extension and your, your forearm. So you, you do have sort of a one, almost a one piece kind of situation but again, it really, it really depends on, you know, testing, testing them, you know, something like the, the tri-rig cups. I've, I've actually never tested them before. They're quite large. And 
from looking from an eyeball point of view, it looks like they may be an advantage, but again, you'd have to test. You know, I think the biggest advantage is just being able to be comfortable and ride in that arrow position that entire time, which seems like you, you are already, we could look at your setup, let's say, and maybe find an extension that hugs your arm a little bit better than what you have, you know, if you just have a round extension. But when you start messing with that front end, it really, it really does require a lot of testing to see what works and what does not work from, from that standpoint. But yeah, in general, those, you know, kind of the, the, the one piece or the shaped arrow extensions, there's a little bit of a gain there, but it's, it is not, it, it really, I would say is probably the, the last place to spend your money would be, would, you know, I, as, I, I like that. I, I like that because they're not inexpensive. Yeah. It is a big change. Front end is such a big change and, and that's a comfort, not just comfort, but it's also like a steering and a, Mm-hmm. safety issue too. And I've been resistant to making that change because I am so comfortable and I like the setup I have and I couldn't get my head around whether or not there was much of a change. And I, I appreciate hearing from you that it sounds like it's pretty, it sounds like it's probably pretty minor. So I, 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 I will continue with what I have. All right, let's, let's yeah. move to a yeah. different technological change that we've seen. And that is this the advent of the no top tube bike, which is specifically the KDEX that uh, Christian mm-hmm. Blumenfeld has been riding. Now, I have understood the point of the beam bike. Uh, I ride a diamond. There's no rear triangles. There's no seat stays sticking out into the wind. So that makes sense to me that there's going to be less there to to interfere with the wind, either when you're at zero degrees yaw or at any angles. I understand that, that I understand no down tube, which makes sense to me from the point of like the Ventum, which doesn't have a down tube, less of an issue at zero degrees yaw. But since we're almost never riding at zero degrees yaw, the Ventum takes away all of the interference. And if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, zero degrees yaw just means if the wind is coming straight on, anything other than zero degrees means the wind is coming from an angle. So if you have no down tube, like the Ventum has no down tube, then you're removing any resistance to airflow coming through the bike if the wind is coming at anything from at any angle other than straight on. The KDEX doesn't have a top tube. And in my understanding, the top tube has always been less of a source of air resistance since your thighs are up there anyways. The KDEX replaces the structural integrity of the top tube with an absolutely massive down tube. And so I am curious, what is the advantage or is there an advantage for the KDEX? I would say there's no advantage. And and also regarding the Ventum and no down tube. At Yaw, generally down tubes are, are actually a source of potential lift. So when we're testing in the wind tunnel, you can actually see you can see the drag actually drop when when we yaw, when we take somebody to a, an angle outside of zero because you you get kind of airflow and it creates sort of a sail effect. The with with the giant, it's one of those it's one of those bikes that I almost feel like they got rid of the down tube just so they could have a picnic basket in the or they got rid of the top tube so they could have a picnic basket in the down, down tube. There's really no there's really no advantage to getting rid of the top tube. It is in line with the wind. Maybe at yaw, you might get a little bit of 
a little bit of disturbance, but even then the virtual shape of that when you're at yaw is, is a little bit more of an oval than it is round. And so, because if, if you were looking at a cross section and you drew an angle across it, you would end up with a, a little bit more of an oval section. So yeah, I don't, I don't think there's really a whole lot of benefit to getting rid of the top tube other than making that down tube very accessible to storage of food and storage of water and all that, that kind of stuff. I, I think the twin, the twin forks are interesting. I don't know. Again, I think it would be very, it'd be highly specific to the person as to whether those control the airflow around the rider or not, but very deep, very aerodynamic. So I, I see those as being not a bad thing, but again, I, I really think that the, the getting rid of the top tube was maybe an aesthetic, an aesthetic choice, and then possibly a functional choice because of being able to use the down tube for storage. That's really interesting. I wanted to back up just a little bit because my friend Joe Wilson is going to be very upset. The the, the Z bike frame specifically, and and Ventum's not the only one, but the mm-hmm. down tube removal is not necessarily helping with aerodynamics. So the other beam bikes, the ones that retain the down tube, I remember you and I talked about this when I went to buy my Mogul because I was worried about riding it in Kona, and you had told me at that time you said that the size of the down tube on the Mogul was actually potentially beneficial because of that lift that you mentioned. So the Z-Bikes could potentially, and you haven't tested Ventums? Yes, we have. Yeah. Oh, you have. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. we won't get there. We won't go into that here, but people, people who own a Ventum may want to get some testing done and see. Okay. Yeah. To, to that point there, I'll just go, I'll, I'll go on the record and say they're not, they're not bad. They're really not. And there's the benefits of them. Obviously you have all the water carried in line and that in the top two bottle which is advantageous. So there's, there's that side of it. But the one thing you don't see with that bike is it's not generating a lot of lift at y'all. So it's just nothing there to really generate lift. And I I know uh, another, another person tested kind of a modern time trial bike compared to the, the old Lotus bike, which is what the Ventum is sort of inspired by. And while the, the Lotus was quite, fast the the more modern tt bikes were were faster so that's interesting well you mentioned water and that brings me to the next question because this has been all the rage this year people seem to be buying larger and larger size tri kits so that they can shove pretty much everything down their shirt Mm -hmm. i'm dying to know what's this about Uh, and 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 do i need to be putting all of my water bottles in my shirt (laughs) it is potentially faster you know, I think Jim it, it Manton, looks potentially much less comfortable. Yeah, I, yeah, I would agree with that. Jim at Arrow had tested several athletes that he's fitted, did did some uh, on road field testing, and found it to be faster. I've seen I've seen also testing where the bottle wasn't faster, but a bladder was. I've seen where the bladder wasn't faster, but the bottle was. I've seen where it's been neutral. So again, I, I think it's one of those things where best practices, you could certainly do it. It's probably not going to hurt you from a aerodynamic standpoint, likely to help, but it's you also have to be comfortable riding with a bottle shoved down the front of your, your kit. And so and it's 
it, it's not a small bottle either. People are people are getting these one and a half liter soda bottles or water bottles or whatever and shoving them down there. And basically they're just, I mean, they're just putting a cap on them. They're empty. They're full of air or maybe there's a splash of water so they can say that it's hydration. But yeah, I mean, it's, it would be a lot to, to, to ride with those things. Again, but it's yeah, just it's, closing, it's closing that space. It's kind of acting is, as a, something yeah, to close I, that gap. It's le- I think it's less closing the space than it is actually creating a non-flat surface in there. So air always kind of even, it doesn't matter what your position is. Air is always sort of getting through between, you know, your arms and your head, unless you're, you know, and I, which is something I don't suggest, especially in triathlon, because there's so many people on course, unless your head's just buried. And then you might be completely blocking off that, that your midsection, but most people don't ride like that. And as such, you have this sort of big flat section on your chest. And so the air comes in, you know, wax that flat section on your chest, creates drag. So you have the bottle in there and the bottle's set centrally. It creates sort of a wedge. It's sort of like the hull of a boat. It just sort of helps push the water out and around the body. So it's essentially, it's not necessarily closing up the gap per se, but it is actually helping smooth the airflow around, around the midsection. And guesstimate of what we're talking about here in terms of time savings? Oh man, I've seen, this is, I, I need to put that on my list to actually test because I've not, not tested it. And that now I'm hearing that they might make it illegal next year. I don't know, but I've seen 10, 15, 20 Watts from people saying that they've tested it to be that, that amount and kind of rule of thumb is five Watts or 0.005 CDA is worth about a half a second per kilometer. So if you're looking at 10, 15 Watts, you're looking at a second to a second and a half per kilometer. So that's not insignificant. Now I can't be the only person who is listening to this and thinking to themselves, my finisher picks would just absolutely go to crap. I mean, I already look at those pictures and I'm like, what do I really look like that on the bike? And now I'm going to have this like bottle stuff down my shirt and I'm going to, I'm just not going to want to buy them anymore. So I I just, I hope they make it illegal. So I don't have to deal with this conundrum because I got to say the idea already of putting this in my shirt just doesn't sound uh, comfortable. And I don't want to think about, you know, that I, I cast aside these seconds. Right. Uh, Anyways. All right. Last question. And I know Mm -hmm. it, I I know already what you're going to say. It's going to depend on the individual, but if it's possible to give me a generic answer, I would appreciate Mm -hmm. it because we've seen this tech go back and forth over the years and it has to do with helmet and the length of the tail. Just if you can, Give me a specific short versus long tail on these aero helmets. And I'm talking specifically about the aero helmets. So right now I ride a Giro. I have the, the what is it, Arrowhead, MIPS, whatever, Arrowhead. I love it. Very comfortable. It is heavy though. But I, my team is actually sponsored by Cask, and Cask makes a very nice aero helmet. It's much lighter. It's got a short tail. I don't know. I haven't tested either of them. I, actually, that's not true. I did test the Arrowhead, and it was quite good. But I don't know. Is there a generic short versus long tail answer? Or again, is it just going to yeah, depend I, so much? I would on say yes. Yeah, I would say, yeah, there's a generic uh, short versus long tail. And, and I think I think just 
visually you can see what the answer is. There's there's very few long tail helmets coming to the market. Very few long tail helmets left on the market. Let you know, me interrupt for a second. Do you consider the arrow? Do you consider the Giro Arrowhead to be a long tail or a short tail? Oh, very much short head, short tail. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the Arrowhead. So I, there's which what, Giro had a long tail helmet, and I can't remember which what it's what it was called now. But but yeah, the the Arrowhead, the Cask Mistral is is quite a good helmet that is relatively short tail, and just even even the newest Laser, which is a little bit of a long tail helmet. Uh, I think they've just released a shorter version of it. It's still relatively short compared to. The old cat-like helmet, the old Giro helmet, most of the, the old helmets specialized. Were, I mean, they the used to have much longer tails. Yeah, 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 exactly. And the specialized is still a good helmet, but the, the big thing with with those helmets are is that you have to have really good head discipline, head position, and the difference between having the tail kind of flat on your back, even with the short tail helmets, and sticking up in the air is. 10, 15 watts. You know, when you look down, when you have a long tail helmet, it's essentially like raising the flaps uh, coming coming in for a landing. I mean, you're just basically putting brakes on. Creates a lot of drag. If you're a person who can hold your head in a, in a very good, stable position, then they work quite well. The other thing we're seeing with helmets that's kind of coming out of, and if, if you watch any bike races in the last couple of years. A lot of this is coming out of the UK. Dan Bingham, who is the former hour record holder and who also worked with uh, Philippe Ogana, who's the current world hour record holder found that like, say for the Mistral you know, with, with cask, who's one of your sponsors, the XL version of the helmet, a lot of times is faster. And the reason being is that it pushes the air around the, the rider's shoulders. And so in isolation, it should be slower, would be slower, but it's about controlling the airflow around the, the rider itself. And that's the same thing that was going on with that POC, that POC helmet that kind of surged in popularity is that it's a very fast helmet for a lot of people. If you can keep your head right, if you move your head and get your head out of position, it is absolute garbage because it, it, it is made for a certain position. And as soon as you raise your head out of that position, it starts catching wind and actually creates some lift. Ah, all right. Well, this has been a great conversation. I, for one, have gotten a few things out of it and I'm going to be lobbying for the down the shirt hydration systems could be banned because I do yeah. not want to be dealing with that. Heath Dotson is a national champion track cyclist. He is also very involved in uh, testing aerodynamics in Asheville, North Carolina. I will include links for all the ways that you can find him. He's also the uh, owner, proprietor, and head coach at HD Cycling, where you can uh, find out more information about the services he provides. He, thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc podcast for this fascinating uh, discussion. I'm sure that uh, we will have more conversations in the future. Thanks, Jeff. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the TriDoc. I'm in charge here. 
Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.